Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 22, Through the St. Bernard's Pass. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our previous episode on Napoleon's first few months, his first consul, his first foray into leading France as a solo man. But as we mentioned when we closed out last week, Napoleon, while popular, still had a tenuous grip on power, and there was much uncertainty among the public as to how long his government would last, if it would last at all. But Napoleon did what all great strongmen seem to do when there is uncertainty surrounding their legitimacy. They go to war and find a common cause for the country to rally around. And with Austria having marched into Genoa just a few months after Napoleon had secured his grip on power, it was the perfect excuse he needed to begin the campaign season once again. Before we begin, though, I just wanted to extend my sincere gratitude again to all of my listeners, where quickly approaching 10,000 downloads just over six months into our journey with Napoleon, and that's something I honestly could have never dreamed of when I first started this podcast. I've mentioned it a few times already that it's not nearly where I'd like to be, but we're just getting started here on this journey together, and I can't wait to see what the next six months brings. So if you haven't done so already, please check me out on Twitter, at Huddy Historian. I post links to the podcast as well as tweet random thoughts on history, sports, food, and the like. So please do stop by, give me a follow, and if you can, donate to my Patreon page, link in the Twitter bio, so that we can keep this podcast coming for the foreseeable future. Okay, so with those plugs out of the way, let's go back to Italy. While on the surface, it seemed convenient for Napoleon that the Austrians would continue westward and give him a good reason to help galvanize France and go to war, Napoleon was, in fact, well aware that war would be on the way regardless. So much so that even before he implemented any of his enlightened reforms, he began to build out his army to prepare for battle come the springtime. In January of 1800, not even two months after the Brumaire coup, he ordered the covert formation of the Army of the Reserve near Dijon in eastern France. Now, Dijon is in the Côte d'Or prefecture of the Department of Burgundy and is world-renowned for their mustard, which bears its name, as well as for the Côte d'Or vineyards, which make up some of the world's most expensive wines from Burgundy. As I said, I like to rant about food. Anyway, this army of the reserve was to be 30,000 strong and composed of veterans, new recruits, and soldiers having previously served in the Vendée. Napoleon was smart in that he ordered units comprising men from all walks of life as well as military experience, so that they could learn from one another. Thus, men who were battle-hardened would serve along young boys who were only weeks removed from working on their family's farm. It allowed for the transfer of experience via osmosis and gave many of the commanding officers more time to focus on more pertinent matters, such as drinking and carousing with the local women. Now, I say the last part half-jokingly, of course, but to many of the officers in the Army of the Reserve, they truly believed it just to be that the reserve army that could be deployed anywhere, most likely the Rhine, because, hell, that's where all the reservists went under the directory anyway. But known only to Napoleon and Berthier, 
this army wasn't a spare unit at all. It was to be the main army that was going to launch his main assault on the Austrians in Italy. And thus, their position at Dijon was critical because the town is relatively close to the French border with Switzerland. Why was that important? Well, let's find out. You see, during his first few months in office as first consul, Napoleon simultaneously dealt with the domestic affair of implementing a new constitution, while also being kept abreast of Austrian movements in Italy by the French troops stationed there, mostly in Genoa. Now, with the Austrians pushing further west, likely aiming not only to take Genoa, but then the rest of Piedmont, and if successful, France itself, Napoleon knew that his best bet at victory was to launch a surprise assault from the north, a.k.a. through Switzerland. Now, doing so would mean that Napoleon would have to pull off a Hannibal and cross the Alps into Italy. Though, to Hannibal's credit, Napoleon wouldn't have to do this with war elephants. So, while difficult, it wasn't exactly the logistical nightmare that was one of the major events of the Second Punic War. And while for a moment it might seem like we're getting a little sidetracked, it is important to point this out. Napoleon's attempted crossing of the Alps was only the second attempt by a standing army since Hannibal pulled off this miraculous feat nearly 2,000 years earlier. In fact, only the great Charlemagne would match his feat over 1,000 years prior to Napoleon, so even in relatively modern warfare, what Napoleon was looking to do was practically unprecedented. But that wouldn't stop Napoleon. He didn't want to repeat what he had done in the first Italian campaign, something which the Austrians likely would have expected and almost certainly something they would have been well prepared for. So, through the Alps, it would be. All that Napoleon needed to do now was decide which route he wanted to take to get across the vast mountain range. Now, there are a few famous passes that run through the Alps, and Napoleon did have a few options at his disposal. He could have taken the St. Gothard Pass in the east, which was likely his preferred choice, as it would have allowed him to perform his patented move of coming up from the rear guard. But, with Austrian advances further westward, his only choice would be the famous St. Bernard Pass. And for the record, there are technically two St. Bernard Passes, the Great and the Little, but Napoleon took the Great, so we're just going to continue to refer it as the St. Bernard Pass moving forward. Though, for what it's worth, he would send a single division through the St. Gothard Pass to help assist their rear once they got down into Italy. Now look, to pull off a crossing of the Alps for a modern military is a logistical nightmare. There is reason that Switzerland was largely spared from the carnage of both world wars. So to do so in 1800, where much of the gear needed to be dragged by horse, mule, and man, well, was insane. It just puts into perspective how crazy Hannibal's crossing was with elephants. But with the advantage of having learned this history... Napoleon planned well in advance by sending cash to guides in local monasteries for direction through the mountains, as well as for needed shelter at predetermined checkpoints, all of whom were sworn to secrecy on the threat of execution. Meeting with his generals, Napoleon organized engineers, supply wagons, and beasts of burden who would be able to pull the heavy artillery up some of the world's tallest mountains. And meeting daily with his high command at the Tuileries, Napoleon coordinated his troop movements almost exactly as to how they would play out in actuality even correctly predicting that the decisive battle would take place in the plains of the river Scrivia once the Austrians repositioned their troops. It would be here, of course, that the decisive battle of Marengo would be fought. Speaking with General Thomas Alexandre Dumas, father of famed French writer Alexandre Dumas, with whom Napoleon had a very tense relationship, Napoleon said, quote, An army can pass always, 
and at all seasons where two men can set their feet. In the same vein as Sun Tzu, he wanted to win this battle long before the cannons were set to fire. The moment arrived in April of 1800, when the 24,000-strong Austrian army under General Karl von Ott began to lay siege to Genoa under the control of French General André Massena and his garrison of 12,000 men. Prior to their arrival, the British had already blockaded the port city, creating a dire situation inside of Genoa. Food was scarce, so much so that citizens were forced to eat dogs and cats, and when they ran out of those, rats would soon fetch high prices at local meat markets. Very appetizing. Sawdust was mixed with bad flour to create a bread that was eaten by most of the people in the city, many of whom would die of starvation by the summer anyway. But the French held firm, at least as best they could. Massena was given orders to shoot any group of more than four Genoese at a time for fear that they might conspire to surrender the port to the British. But now with the Austrians nearing the city gates, the French situation there became untenable. They would need external relief, and quickly. So with warm weather approaching as Maine neared, Napoleon decided to make his move. With General Moreau seeing more success in the Rhine campaign with his larger forces, Napoleon would focus his entire energy on securing France's southern flank in Italy. After observing troops in Paris on May 5th, likely doing so in front of Austrian spies to lull them into a false sense of security, Napoleon attended the opera with Josephine, seemingly acting as if it were just another evening as the leader of France. At 2 a.m., only mere hours after the opera finished, Napoleon set off for Dijon, in secret, under the cover of darkness, arriving by the next morning. After inspecting his troops, speaking to his generals, and making sure that his supply wagons were ready, they began their march into Switzerland. Three days later, he arrived in Geneva to large crowds. With his mission still relatively secret to outsiders, he informed the Swiss that he was on his way to Basel, but in reality, his vanguard, under General François Rotin, were already at the entrance to the St. Bernard's Pass. Sending the forces under the command of Jean Lannes next, Napoleon would then follow, accompanied by Bessaret and the cavalry under Murat, beginning their ascent on May 14th. Now, the winter of 1799 to 1800 was particularly harsh in northern Italy, and even in mid-May, there was substantial snowfall at the base of the mountains. Making matters worse was that there wasn't really a road through the St. Bernard Pass. In fact, the first was completed only a century later. But, as is so often the case in history, Napoleon was struck with a massive score of luck. The weather subsided as he and his men made the crossing, and it was reported that the weather was terrible just prior to their ascent and became increasingly worse once they completed their descent. But miraculously, again, Napoleon missed both storms. In all, 51,400 men, 10,000 horses, 750 mules, and 40 cannons made the crossing, mostly in single file. They had to begin the trek every day at dawn, because if they waited until the sun rose, they risked ice melt and avalanches, which, of course, would have severely hindered the expedition and outright cut off a good part of the supply train. But the French managed to withstand the brutal temperatures and harsh terrain, and they made the successful crossing in only 11 days, half the time it took Hannibal to make the same journey. They lost only one cannon, and Napoleon's daring crossing has become immortalized in legend. Much of that inaccurate, and much of that thanks to Jacques-Louis David's painting on Napoleon crossing the Alps atop a magnificent steed, but as I'm sure many of us know by now, he made the crossing riding a donkey. Napoleon, and I want to stress this point, did not technically lead this expedition either. While he had planned it and coordinated much of the logistical components, as I mentioned earlier, he wasn't in the vanguard. 
he, for lack of a better term, simply followed the path forged in front of him. Then, indeed, he made sure to follow once all the main supply lines and logistics had been well established, including making sure that all of the wine was there. But because he proposed, planned, and executed on it, the French army of the reserves crossing of the Alps has forever gone down in history as Napoleon crossing the Alps. And while it was an unquestioned success, it wasn't a flawless success. Hungarian units helped to disrupt supply lines and prevented much of the heavy wagon trains from reaching Italy on time, which further delayed the campaign and quite nearly put it in jeopardy. But even through the tribulations, the French made the crossing and Napoleon, while delayed, began his plans to launch his main assault, as well as a few unexpected surprises. Now, by this point on the other side of the Alps, Austrian General Michael von Melis had taken knees and was beginning to push further west. Now, while this seemed like a coup for the Austrians, Napoleon was perfectly content with them doing this because it pushed them further and further away from their supply lines, supply lines which Napoleon had every intention of slicing in half once he was in position. So while General Lannes took Evreo on May 22nd, von Melis was still receiving intelligence that there were only 6,000 troops in the nearby valley of Aosta, completely unaware that he was falling right into Napoleon's trap. Two days later, Napoleon was at Aosta with 33,000 men, with another 12,500 in reserve quickly behind. But Napoleon didn't attack. He abruptly turned east, heading for Milan, surprising not only his Austrian adversaries, but his own senior staff. See, both had assumed that he would head south to relieve the starving city of Genoa, but as we've seen by now, Napoleon is not a man who takes the bait. He ordered Massena to hold out for as long as possible as he went to Milan to raid their supply depots and cut off Melis's line of retreat towards the Mincio River and Mantua, where they likely would be sitting ducks. Von Melis then left Nice, headed for Turin, and ultimately to Alessandria to try and meet Napoleon head-on. Melis then ordered his Austrian colleague Field Marshal Ott to lift the siege of Genoa to help better concentrate the Austrian forces against Napoleon, but Ott ignored the request as Messena just couldn't handle it anymore and was asking for terms of surrender. On the same day, June 2nd, Napoleon entered Milan, captured the city, and made his headquarters in the city's Archducal Palace. He received dignitaries from the French puppet state Cisalpine Republic, of which Milan was the capital, released political prisoners from the Austrian uh, occupiers, and began to draft edicts to reorganize the government, which had been re-reorganized by the Austrians during their 1799 reconquest. Did we catch all that? Good. Napoleon would also read many of the Austrian dispatches between Milan and Vienna, which proved helpful in understanding the troop movements from the Austrians. Napoleon would also intercept personal letters from Melis, one of which was a letter to his mistress, and in a bit of reverse propaganda, and also in a bit of irony, had it published in the Italian newspapers to help embarrass his Austrian counterpart. It was, as always, good wartime fun. The letter told his mistress not to worry, as no French army would be able to enter the region of Lombardy, but little did he know that the French vanguard under General Lannes was about to do just that. Now, a lot of the following action we're going to talk about what happens somewhat simultaneously, so we'll try to cover the major events one by one. But just keep in mind that much of what was happening is happening in conjunction with other parts of the campaign. So, before we get to Lannes in Lombardy, let's go back and start with the surrender of Genoa. As Napoleon was going through much of the intercepted correspondence from Vienna, he noticed that the Austrian forces were concentrated in three main spots. Melis had the largest contingent with 18,000 men holding Turin, 
Field Marshal Antoine von Elschnitz held the Italian River with 8,000 men, and then there was about 16,000 men who were able to secure Massena's surrender of Genoa on June 4th. After nearly two months of grueling siege warfare, Massena, again, was unable to hold out, much to Napoleon's ire. But with over 30,000 dead and thousands more death stored due to starvation, Massena included, who insisted on eating only what his soldiers ate, to continue the siege was nothing short of futile. Now, Massena was equally irate that Napoleon decided to head for Milan rather than to attempt to save his men, something which he never truly forgave Napoleon for. But it is here that we see a deeper side to Napoleon's ruthlessness. Napoleon never forgave Massena for not being able to hold out longer. He expected Massena to wait as long as he was physically able, death be damned, and to never surrender. In fact, he would later write in exile in St. Helena, quote, A few old men and some women might have died of hunger but then he would not have surrendered Genoa. If one always thinks of humanity, only of humanity, one should give up going to war. I don't know how war is to be conducted on the Rosewater Plain. Now, as it turned out, he certainly could have used a few more additional days because it would have prevented Ott from arriving with his troops in Marengo, but we'll get to that later. Now, simultaneous to the surrender of Genoa, General Lan was heading south from Milan and seized Pavia on June 3rd, coincidentally where Melis's mistress was staying. Now, with the assistance of Murat and General Jean Boudet, the three divisions were able to run over the nearby strategically important Piacenza, which then put them on the direct Austrian line of communication between Alessandria and our old stomping ground of Mantua. It was here that Murat learned of the surrender of Genoa and, saddled with this new development, sent the dispatches to Napoleon. Napoleon, as we've already mentioned, was furious and had to change the strategy, and he then ordered Lon to continue to press the Austrians out of the valley. But Napoleon also made a critical error by miscalculating the number of troops the Austrians had at their disposal. Ordering Lon to continue marching west, which heavily overextended the French lines, Napoleon assumed that the Austrians were small in number and that Lon would be able to continue to fight on. Marching with 8,000 men, Lon would soon come into contact with a force of 18,000 under Ott, who were confident after scoring a victory at Genoa. On the morning of June 9, 1800, they met at Montebello. That morning, General François Wartrin, the same man who led the French vanguard through the St. Bernard's Pass, encountered Austrian troops and began to attack immediately. Now, Ott was initially advised against engaging the French, but he overruled them, believing he could knock their unit out and continue on to Milan. Lon's forces fed unit after unit, but they were repulsed by the superior artillery fire of the Austrians. For five hours, both sides traded blows and captured nearby villages to try and outflank the other, but by 1 p.m., Lon's men were near the breaking point. But at 1 p.m., that's when they were miraculously relieved by General Division, and here we go, Jacques-Antoine de Chambolac de la Bouspine's division of Claude Parrain-Victor's corps. Whew. Victor then sent his line to the right of the Austrians, and despite intense cannon fire, they were able to apply enough pressure to force the tired Austrians back, prompting a phased retreat. The subsequently named Battle of Montebello did not wipe off Ott's forces or prevent them from winning a campaign, but it did help instill a confidence in the French troops that they could withstand a larger Austrian army. 
It also helped further Lon's own personal career, as he distinguished himself in the battle, something which would become a fixture in his rise to marshal the empire. Likewise, the battle seriously damaged Austrian morale, as their men were stunned by the defeat, having outnumbered the French by almost 10,000 men. When von Melis was informed of the defeat, he was reported to have been almost hypnotized, as if transfixed that he needed as many men as possible to defeat this David against his mighty Goliath. He would wait for reinforcements at his encampment at Alessandria while he awaited the next major engagement. But he wouldn't need to wait for too long. Because as Napoleon received the news of Lon's victory at Montebello, he waited to see what Melis's next move would be, this sort of cat-and-mouse game between the two. Prior to the engagement, Napoleon had spent his days in Milan sifting through various spy rings in the city, discussing religion with the local Catholic priests, and sleeping with star singers after watching their shows. Coincidentally, he told Josephine not to come to Milan this time around. Better to wait one more month before I come home, honey. In any event, once Napoleon received word of the victory, he began to feel overconfident, believing that the Austrians would be in full retreat. Now, the Austrians, meanwhile, concentrated their forces at Alessandria with the intention to push their way east. Napoleon, likely thanks to the work of double, or perhaps triple agent, Francois or Francisco Tolli, there's still some debate as to which nationality he held, but in reality it doesn't matter, was informed that they would march north by crossing the Po and head straight for Milan. Now, the Austrian high command strongly pushed for this plan of deception, as their cavalry was of superior strength, and they could have easily either outflanked or overpowered the smaller French forces. Nevertheless, Melis decided to abandon the plan, and this would prove to be a serious error. Still, with the French and Napoleon unaware of the true Austrian attack plans, this allowed von Melis's men to launch their surprise assault on the French forces on June 14th in Alessandria, near the small village of Marengo. So we're going to leave it here for this week. I originally intended to do Napoleon's crossing of the Alps and Marengo all in the same episode, but the Battle of Marengo, like many of Napoleon's subsequent major battles, is complex and has a lot of moving parts, so I thought it better to devote an entire episode to explain it fully, and trust me, it deserves it. So next week... We'll dive headlong into Napoleon's first major victory as first consul, one that helped him maintain control on power, but one that almost ended in complete disaster. <laughs>